use that. It's there for you if you want to make any notes, etc. I don't know if you've ever sat in church and listened to the preacher and thought, is he ever going to finish? And I know, I know you probably think that most Sundays when I'm preaching, and you're probably already starting to think that already this morning, and I've only just started. But one of my, one of my memories as a kid growing up in church was uh, sitting through sermons and listening to the preacher, and after they'd preach for about 45 minutes, they would say something like, and now for my second point. And you just think, oh, no, no more. Surely not. He's preached for 45 minutes. How much longer is this going to go on for? Or, or they'd say something like, I would just like to say in closing, and then they'd go on and speak for another 10, 15 minutes. Or, you know, you think, finally he's finished. Finally we've got there. And then it would kind of go on again and again and again. Looking back, I guess the fact that I was desperate for them to finish was probably a sign that maybe they weren't too great at preaching, some of them. Or maybe it was just that I wasn't ready to listen to what they were saying. I don't know. But, well, in the passage that we're of the Bible that we're looking at today, we get one of those, and I would just like to say in closing, moments. Only this wasn't from a dull and a boring preacher. This was from the, the greatest teacher and preacher that the world has ever seen. We're going to look at the next section of what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, and it was a sermon that Jesus preached. And at the end of the sermon, we read these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. So when Jesus reached the section we're looking at today, those listening hadn't got bored, they hadn't got fed up, they weren't looking at their watch thinking, oh, how much longer have we got to endure this for, which is probably how often we find ourselves sometimes in church, obviously never here, never in this church, but perhaps in some sermons. They, the crowds that were listening to Jesus that day, they were just amazed at his teaching. They weren't checking their watches, they weren't looking for the clock, they were just amazed at Jesus' words. But nevertheless, Jesus had reached one of those and finally moments. So we're going to look at this and finally moment and see what Jesus was saying as he drew this great sermon to a close. So let's just read uh, Matthew chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, if you want to turn with me, if not, you can just listen as I read it to you. That's fine. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verse 12 to 14, including. So Jesus says this, and this is the and finally moment. So, that's his and finally moment. So, he's drawing it all to an end. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, by the way, was just another way of saying the whole of the Old Testament. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the, old pro- uh, the, law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus had been preaching to this great crowd of people, although what he was saying was primarily aimed at his immediate followers, probably the 12 disciples and perhaps some more. And we, what we read in Matthew's account was probably just the edited highlights. Jesus, I'm sure, said an awful lot more than we get in Matthew. Matthew has just, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, preserved what we need to know. But Jesus obviously said more and, and clearly did say more than what we've got recorded for us. But if we were to sum up what Jesus was saying in this great sermon, it would be this, how to enter God's kingdom and how to live as a citizen 
of God's kingdom. That's his sermon, how to enter God's kingdom, how to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. The way we enter God's kingdom is to accept Jesus as our king. It's about surrendering to Jesus, making him king, making him lord of our life. And we're going to look at how we do that and what that looks like uh, in, in a moment. God's kingdom isn't a geographical kingdom. It's not like the United Kingdom. God's kingdom exists wherever he is king in people's lives. So if God is king, if Jesus is king of your life, God's kingdom is alive and active in and through you. That is wherever God reigns, that is where his kingdom is, through people's lives. Now most of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks has been what Jesus has said about how he expects those who've become part of God's kingdom, those who've surrendered to Jesus as their king, how he expects those people to live. What does that look like? And having talked about all sorts of different aspects of life, Jesus now comes towards the end of his sermon. He's at that and finally moment, or that so enclosing moment. This is where Jesus has got to. And this is what he says in verse 12. So, this is his and finally moment. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus and finally moment is when he says so. He's bringing his sermon to an end and he's summing up what he said but as we're going to see like so many good preachers he's not quite finished. He's got a bit more to say. Just like some preachers say and finally and then carry on for a bit longer. Jesus actually carries on and he has four more key points and we're going to look at those over the next few weeks. So Jesus brings these four more key points to us, as we're going to see. And Jesus is summing up what he said, and he's summing up what the entire Old Testament actually teaches. That's what he's referring to when he says the law and the prophets. It was the way the Jewish people divided the Old Testament into two groups, sometimes three groups, but the law and the prophets. Whenever you read that, when Jesus is speaking, he's talking about the Old Testament. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, the way that people who live who've accepted Jesus as their king, is that they love other people. They do to other people what they would hope that other people would do to them. It's what we often call, or what's often called the golden rule. Now Jesus doesn't say, don't do to other people the things that you don't want done to you. That would just be a very negative way of putting it, wouldn't it? That would actually be about reducing problems. That would be about reducing problems for yourself. That would be a very me-centered approach. That would actually be about me and not about others. That would be a, a very self-centered approach, all about loving me. What Jesus is saying is that we should be actively looking for ways in which we can help and bless other people. This isn't just about reducing what we don't want done to us. It's about actively looking for ways in which we can help and bless and love other people. It's another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Just as you love yourself and look after yourself and your own needs, which is good, it's right. Also, we should love other people in that same way, Jesus says. Treat other people in the way you would like to be treated, or, or tret, as we say up here. It's not just about withholding bad things. It's about actively going, looking for ways in which to help those around us who are in need. Just as when we are in need, and we would like help. How would we like to be helped when we were in need, when we are in situations? And to say, right... When I see other people in similar situations, I'm going to go looking for ways in which I can help them and bless them. Those who have accepted God's kingdom, in other words, those who have accepted Jesus as their king, are those whose lives are radically different, or they're meant to be. 
our lives, if we're followers of Jesus, if Jesus is my king, my life should look different to how it used to look before I was a Christian, and certainly from how it would look if I wasn't a Christian. The world around us says, love yourself. Jesus says, love your neighbor in the same way as you love yourself. Jesus wants his followers to actively look for ways to love others. And as we become aware of the needs of people around us, whether that's our immediate neighbor or people perhaps in far-flung parts of the world, wherever it is, as we become aware of those needs, then if we're in a position to help, we should try and do so. Now, we won't always be able to help. There are more needs in this world. There are more needs in the northeast of England than I could personally possibly ever meet. We're not going to be able to meet every need out there, and we won't be able to help everybody with all their needs. But if and when we can, then we should. If it's within our ability, if it's within our power to try and help others, then we should try and do that. It's asking that question, what would I like to happen to me if I was in that situation? How would I like to be treated if that was me? If I was an asylum seeker turning up in this country, how would I like other people to treat me? If I have nothing, how would I like other people to treat me? I'd want them to invite me into their home. I'd want them to care for me. I'd want them to love me. It's about asking, how can I help those who have needs in, to be treated in the same way that I would like to be treated? And one of the ways we can do that, as we look around us for immediate needs, but as we look right across the world, if you've been watching the news this last week, it won't have escaped your attention, the terrible devastation in Southeast Africa, in Mozambique, and in Zimbabwe and Malawi. People have experienced terrible devastation through that cyclone. And so actually next Sunday what we're going to do here as a church, we're going to replace our general offering with an offering that will be for the work of a Missionary Aviation Fellowship. MAF are a Christian missionary organization that fly planes in and out of difficult to reach parts of the world, providing help and support primarily to missionaries, but also to the people and the projects that they're working with. And MAF are heavily involved right at the moment in the relief effort in that part of the world. So we're going to hold an offering next Sunday. It won't be our general fund. It will be for MAF. And every single penny of whatever we give as a church will go to MAF for them to be able to help make a difference, make some kind of difference out there in East Africa, Southeast Africa. So please do give serious thought as to what God might be saying to you about how you could give via Regent and via MAF to help those that are in that terrible situation. I would like to think that if I was... Uh, if, if my home had gone, if I had nothing, and if water had flooded my life out, that somebody somewhere else who could help would help. And so let's reflect on that as we think, how can we help? How can we bless others with the many things that God has blessed us with? That's a great opportunity for us to meaningfully do to others what we would like done to us. But living that way, doing to others what we'd have them do to us, isn't easy. In, in, in fact, it's totally unnatural for us. Our natural way of living is to look after number one, isn't it? And our natural way to live is to ignore the needs of others. It's, it's to look at, at our own needs. It's to live for self. And often, sadly, even when people do help others, their real motive is to draw attention to themselves, or sometimes it's about making ourselves feel better, rather than genuinely, uh, honestly, authentically trying to help somebody. And that's why we need God's help with this, because our motives are never pure, and, and we struggle with this. This, this kind of lifestyle that Jesus is, is describing right throughout the great Sermon on the Mount is impossible for us to do in our own strength. It's totally unnatural. It flies in the face of how, we're, how we would naturally do things. We need God's help. We need, we need a, a, a change in our hearts. We need a supernatural change in our hearts if we're going to live this way. 
It's what Jesus elsewhere calls being born again or being born from above. And so Jesus, with that thought in mind, continues by saying, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Jesus is using picture language of two of, of, of gates and of roads to describe two different ways to live. So these are pictures he's using to try and communicate what it looks like to live in these two different ways. Jesus is basically saying that there are two ways to live. One way of living is like a broad road. It has a wide and accessible entrance. In fact, everybody naturally goes this way. Everybody is naturally living on that broad road. It's a broad and accessible entrance. Wide is the gate, says Jesus. And it's a broad road. Literally, this literally in Greek means a, a broad, spacious place. It's where everybody naturally goes. It'll accommodate ma- many people. It's well-traveled. And it's the way that people go without even thinking about it. It's the default for humanity. Everybody's already on that road. It's the way everybody naturally lives. But Jesus is saying, don't go down that route. Don't live that way. Don't travel on that road because it leads to destruction. Instead, live a different life. Choose a different path. Go in a different direction. And the way to get on, onto that different path is to go through what Jesus calls the narrow gate. He says, enter through the narrow gate. So Jesus is calling people to choose a different way to live, but it requires a conscious and deliberate choice to change direction. To get off the road that we're naturally traveling on and to get onto a different road. And the way to get on that, onto that different road is to go through what Jesus calls the narrow gate. In other words, the way to this new and different way of living is through Jesus. Jesus is the narrow gate. In fact, in John 10 verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus is using this picture of a narrow gate as a picture of what he's like. Jesus is the gate. He's the starting point for this new way of living that he's calling us to live. There's two ways to live. There's our way, the way that we naturally live, and then there's Jesus' way. Our way is the broad road. Jesus' way is a narrow road. See, the broad road that everybody's naturally on eventually leads to destruction. The Bible says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. If we live our way instead of God's way, then whilst it might seem good, it might seem fun, all our friends are living the same way, and we can live as we please, eventually that way of living leads to death, leads to destruction, says Jesus. And this isn't talking about physical death. This is spiritual death, and spiritual death means being eternally separated from God in what the Bible calls hell. It's a place of eternal punishment for all our wrongdoing, for all our sin. So Jesus is calling people to get off that road, to stop living that way, and to start living God's way, to start traveling down the narrow road. And the way that we get off that broad road and get onto the narrow road, the road that leads to eternal life, is through the narrow gate, and the gate is Jesus. How do we do that? Well, it's about making a decisive break from our past. It's about turning around. It's what the Bible calls repentance. And as we repent, as we make that decisive turn away from how we used to live, as we repent of the way we've been living, and as we come to Jesus, we have to abandon everything else and make Jesus our king. It's about surrendering our lives to Jesus. It's about making him our king. It's about making him our Lord. It's about putting him at the center of our lives. And 
When we do that, we enter God's kingdom. When we make Jesus our king, we become part of God's kingdom. And then we'll be part of what God is doing here on earth. We'll be living the way that our king, Jesus, wants us to live instead of the way that we used to live, instead of the way that we would naturally live. And because Jesus is the narrow gate, when we come to him, we have to lay everything else down. There's no room to carry anything else with us. It's like this picture. There's only room to squeeze through. If you were trying to get through that gate with a big, you know, multi-backpack on and suitcases, you're not going to make it. You're going to have to ditch all the other stuff, and it's just you with nothing else squeezing through that gate. That's the kind of picture that Jesus is trying to convey here. Jesus is saying that we have to lay down all our good works, all our own efforts that we think will impress God, and we dump those, and we just come to Jesus. We simply bring our lives to him. It also means that we can't take anything else through that narrow gate. We have to lay down all our plans and ambitions, all the things that we've filled our lives with that are are wrong. Turn away from all that's wrong. And when we come to Jesus with empty hands and just say, it's just me and you, Jesus, asking him to forgive us and to become king of our lives. And as we do that, we can begin this new life, entering through Jesus the narrow gate. And as we do so, God gives us his Holy Spirit. As we come to Jesus and surrender our lives to him as Lord and King, he gives us the Holy Spirit and we're born again or we're born from above. We have this spiritual transformation. It doesn't mean we suddenly become sinless or perfect, far from it. The rest of the Christian life is about working out what it means to follow Jesus, which we're going to look at in a moment. But the power to do that, the strength that we have, we need to do that, is from the Holy Spirit. And we receive God's forgiveness. We have a relationship with God and we receive eternal life as we come to Jesus. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit within us that then enables us to live God's way, even though living God's way is often really hard and difficult. Actively looking for ways to love others, loving our neighbor as ourselves, that isn't easy to do. And it doesn't come naturally to us, so we need God's help. We need to dump everything else, come to Jesus, that narrow gate, surrender our lives to him, and receive the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to be those new people that he calls us to be. So Jesus wants us to reject the broad road that leads to destruction. And he wants us to come to him and begin a new life, a new life that brings and leads to eternal life. Jesus says this in verse 14, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Coming to Jesus, the narrow and the small gate means laying everything down and surrendering to him as our Lord and our King. We bring ourselves and nothing else. And Jesus describes our new way of life as the narrow road. It literally, doesn't really quite translate, but the Greek word here, it literally means the kind of path in a gorge that has cliffs pressing in, it, in on it from either side. This is, the kind of, this is the, what the Greek word means. It's a narrow path through, these, through this gorge with, with the walls pressing in. And it will be a lonely path because only a few people find it. When we choose this path, when we surrender to Jesus, we'll often find ourselves in the minority. There won't be as many people on this path. Most of our friends, most of our family will still be living the other way. And that will often be hard and difficult for us. It might mean laying some relationships down that are really special and really dear to us. It will often be really hard and difficult. 
The Greek word that's translated narrow in this verse, the narrow road, is a different Greek word to the word that's translated as narrow in verse 13, the narrow door, two different words. So the word in verse 13 is literally narrow, it's a narrow gate. Whereas this verse in, 14, in verse 14, whilst being translated in English as narrow, it's also linked to the word that's translated as persecution. So it's a narrow way with walls that press in on us, and these walls that press in on us often come in the form of persecution. That's what's really behind this Greek word. Non-Christians around us, as we begin this new way of living, as we walk on this narrow road, will often not appreciate the change in our lives. They often won't share our new values. They often won't share or appreciate what we're doing. They won't always welcome the change in our lives and they will sometimes make life very difficult for us. Jesus is saying that living with Jesus as our king and living his way will often be really difficult. He's warning and he's preparing those that are considering following him that there is going to be a significant cost in this life. Salvation, what we call salvation, which means being saved, having our sins forgiven, getting right with God and receiving eternal life. These are free gifts from God. We can't earn them. There's nothing that we can do to get them. We come to Jesus with nothing and we ask him to forgive us and we receive forgiveness, eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit and a relationship with God. We're saved. We have salvation. Nothing we can do to earn it. It's a free gift. But following Jesus and living his way, once we've received that free gift is often very costly. Salvation is free, but following Jesus is incredibly and can be incredibly costly. Jesus says this in Luke 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Living with Jesus as our king, being a disciple of Jesus involves denying ourselves and involves taking up our cross every single day. What does Jesus mean by taking up our cross? Well, the cross was a symbol and a means of death. And so Jesus is saying that we have to make that daily choice to die to ourselves, to what we want, to how we would like to live. That's effectively what Jesus is saying. We need to surrender our plans, our ambitions, the way that we would like to live. It's about dying to self. That's what this picture of carrying our cross means. And in dying to ourselves, our desires, our plans, and our ambitions, we instead choose to follow Jesus and live the way that he wants us to live. You'd think, wouldn't you, that if Jesus was in the business of trying to attract crowds and get more and more people to become Christians, he wouldn't be saying this. He'd be saying, you know, actually come to me, it's fun, it's great, you'll have such a great time, and, this is, and it's going to be great, you'll be fulfilled, and you'll have great pleasure in this life. Jesus doesn't do that. He repeatedly sends people away who aren't prepared for the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus is tough. It's difficult. Salvation is free, but following Jesus can be and is for many people around the world incredibly costly. This narrow road, this way of living that's often difficult and hard and involves self-sacrifice, though, leads to life. It's fullness of life right here, right now on earth, and it's life eternal beyond death and it's only when we choose to live for Jesus that we are truly really alive and free we think that the narrow road is going to be uh, you know restricting and dull and we think that dying to self is going to be restrictive and dull but it's only when we truly to it's only when we truly surrender to Jesus and live his way hard as that will be 
that we truly realize what living is really about. And it's only in that moment that we truly experience true life and real freedom. The broad road looks great. It looks easy, it promises a great deal, but it's false. It's empty, it doesn't deliver. In fact, what it delivers is death. It promises so much and delivers nothing. And what it actually delivers is death. The people that are on it think that they're free, when actually what they are are slaves to sin, the Bible says. And it leads to death and hell. The narrow road, on the other hand, hand is hard. There's often great costs involved. But it's true. And it leads to real life, eternal life, and eternity forever with Jesus in heaven. And the power that enables us not only to survive on that narrow road, but to thrive on it, is the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And it's his power and his presence within us that helps us to keep going and helps us to persevere. And it's his power that changes us so that we want to and are able to live the way that God wants us to, such as doing to others what we would have them do to us, such as loving our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, so now I've come to my and finally, or for my last point moment. I wonder what road you are on in life today. Are you on the broad road that leads to destruction. If you are, then can I challenge you and urge you to leave that road and meet with Jesus. Meet with Jesus today. Come to Jesus, surrender your life to him, make him your Lord and your King. And in doing so, receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that he offers you. That's a decision that I made as a seven-year-old in in, in Rob's dad's Sunday school class as we went through these very, very same verses, the broad road and the narrow road. Distinctly remember it as we prayed at the end of Sunday school and and privately in my own head, surrendering my life to Jesus. I didn't understand fully what that meant as a seven-year-old. I had lots of growing and learning to do and still growing and learning, but very clearly, very really as a seven-year-old, I made that first step in surrendering my life to Jesus as we looked at these very verses. That's a decision that you can make today too, if you haven't done that, to leave that broad road and to come to Jesus and begin living on that narrow road, the road that leads to eternal life. Maybe this morning you made that choice in the past to be on that narrow road, but the reality is your life looks more like the the broad road than the narrow road. And you've made a whole load of decisions and life choices which have led you far away from Jesus. You're still in Christ. You won't lose your salvation, but you're not living as Jesus wants you to. And to all intents and purposes, you're on that broad road, not leading to destruction, but that's the kind of lifestyle you're leading. Can I challenge you this morning? Can I urge you to get off that and get back onto that narrow road, to be a radical living follower of the Lord Jesus, where he is king of your life. That might be costly, might mean laying down relationships, might mean turning away from lifestyles, might mean all sorts of costly things. But it's the only real way of freedom. It's the only real way of life. Maybe this morning you're already on that narrow road, that road that leads to life. And if you are, then it's so important that we remember that it is a narrow road and it is a hard road. There will be great sacrifices. This is not a great popular Uh, You know, how to fill Regent Chapel, this wouldn't be the message to preach. But Jesus spends a lot of his ministry preaching on popular stuff. There will be great sacrifices. If we're following Jesus, it's going to cost us. If we're following Jesus, in this life, there will be hardship. Jesus says it over and over again. 
will need to make that daily choice to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And that will look differently for each one of us, what those sacrifices might look like. Self-sacrifice and dying to our own desires is at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus says it's how his disciples, it's how his followers live. It's what it looks like if we're genuinely, authentically following Jesus. And if self-sacrifice and dying to self is not part of your life, then you need to ask yourself if you are truly a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. We need to turn our backs on what this world offers. And our friends and our families and our work colleagues may well turn their backs on us as a result. For many, many Christians around the world today, being a follower of Jesus, choosing to trust in Jesus, means open persecution and even death. For many, many people around the world this morning, to trust in Jesus means to be shunned by their family, means to have to leave their country, and in some cases will mean death. That's what it means for many of our brothers and sisters this morning. For us, less so, more subtle things but it may mean being ostracized at work or in our families. Is it worth it? Is it worth the sacrifice and grief? Is it worth the hassle and the cost? Absolutely. As we remind ourselves and as we contemplate who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it is absolutely worth it because Jesus is worth it. This isn't about ultimately whether I feel more fulfilled or my life feels fulfilled or, you know, I'm I'm living that kind of life of promise. It's not about that. It's fundamentally about Jesus. Jesus is worth it. As we think in a few moments, as we take communion, as we take bread, and as we take wine or grape juice in our case, as we take this and as we reflect and as we think upon, as we gaze in faith upon our lovely Lord Jesus, he is worth it. As we remind ourselves about the great sacrifice that Jesus made as he was nailed there to that cross, as he became sin for you and me, so that we wouldn't have to face God's wrath. Surely, we want to give him our all in return, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's your your reasonable, the Greek word is logical. It's the only rational solution. It's the only rational outcome. When we think about who Jesus is and what he's done, the only logical thing to do is to offer ourselves completely to him. Surely we want to give him our all in return to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And as we gaze upon the wonder of who Jesus is, you know, even if Jesus had never come to the cross, he is still wonderful. He is still worthy of our lives. We don't just worship Jesus because he's done something for us. We should worship Jesus because he's the altogether lovely one. He's the word who became flesh, the eternal son of the eternal God. And as we gaze on the wonder of who Jesus is and the wonder of all that Jesus has done for us, surely it calls us to surrender to him. And as we do so, we'll discover that real freedom comes from surrendering to Jesus. It's counterintuitive, it's a paradox, but real freedom and real joy comes when we surrender to Jesus as king. The Bible says that everybody by nature is a slave to sin. When we trust in Jesus, we become slaves to Jesus. But in slavery to Jesus, we are free. It's a paradox, but it's true. And real freedom and joy comes when Jesus is our Lord and King. The world says freedom and happiness comes when we live as we want. 
Jesus says real freedom and real joy comes from living with Jesus as our King and our Lord. The narrow way leads to real life now and real life in eternity. A life that goes on forever beyond death, where we'll be with God forever. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more persecution. What a wonderful future we have if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's worth it. The narrow road, tough though it is, is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The end is worth it. If you're on the broad road this morning, then can I challenge you to come to Jesus today, surrender your life to him, receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that he offers and begin living on that narrow road. And if you're already on that narrow road, keep going. Don't give up. So tempting to give up. So tempting to fall back. Don't give up. Don't give in. Persevere. It will often be hard, but it is and will be worth it. And above all else, Jesus deserves it. Let's bow our heads, shall we? I don't know where you're at this morning with God, but here's an opportunity for us just to respond to what we've heard this morning. As we reflect on what Jesus has said, what his words are, as we reflect on the wonder and the beauty of Jesus, an opportunity for us just to respond in in the quietness of this moment in our own hearts. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, then come to that narrow gate, lay everything down, and enter through the narrow gate, enter through Jesus. If you're on that narrow road, keep going. Jesus is worth it. The end is worth it. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came. Thank you that you showed us what it means to live as a follower of you. Thank you that you laid down your life to deal with the problem of our sins so that we could live on that narrow road, empowered by your spirit, have eternal life, and live for you. Help us, we pray, each one of us, to every day make you our king. Surrender our lives to you, we pray. Help us to make a difference as your subjects, as people of your kingdom, to spread the standards of your kingdom, to live out what it means to be part of your kingdom, to love others, to do to others what we would like done to ourselves, whether that's the person next to us or people across the world. Help us to be those kind of people, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Should we stand?